0: Hello and welcome to First to Fifteen, the official podcast of USA Fencing. I'm your host, Brian Wendell, and in this show you're going to hear from some of the most inspiring, interesting, and insanely talented people in this sport we all love. First to Fifteen is for anyone in the fencing community and even for those just checking out fencing to see what it's all about. So whether you're an Olympian or Paralympian, a newcomer, a seasoned veteran, a fencing parent, a fan, or anyone else in this wonderful community, this podcast is for you. With that, let's get to today's episode. Enjoy. Today's guest is foil fencer Sylvie Bender, a recent graduate from Columbia University who had an impressive collegiate career, including being named a first team All-American three times and winning both the NCAA team championship and the individual women's foil title in 2019. And if that didn't keep her busy enough, Sylvie also graduated with a 3.91 GPA coached fencing at a local middle school, and participated in a panel of elite female fencers to discuss mental health. So we're going to get into all those topics and more on today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, Sylvie.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here and share what I can with others.
0: Yeah, this is great. Now, I always like to know for the fencers who were successful at the collegiate level and beyond, how they got started in fencing. So before we get into, you know, all the great stuff you did at Columbia, what was kind of your origin story in fencing?
1: Yeah, so I think that every fencer has their unique origin story, but it kind of all begins the same way. It's that I was six years old or seven years old, and one of my parents introduced me to the sport that would change my life, right? And so thanks to my dad for that. But yeah, I was six years old. We were on a family camping trip, and I was playing with sticks in the woods, believe it or not. And one of our family friends approached my dad and he had been fencing recreationally as an adult and he said sylvie looks competent she should try out fencing just from the
0: sticks they could tell that
1: i mean i was a left-handed six-year-old playing with sticks in the woods you know holding my own against the boys so i mean there was definitely something to it to the comment and the rest is history i went to the fencing academy of westchester and got picked up Right away by Oleg Brusilovski, my coach for four years after that point. And, you know, thanks to him and my dad, I started fencing.
0: And then when did you realize that you were actually pretty good at this? That, you know, once they take the stick out of your hand and put a, a foil in your hand, that this was something that you had some success in?
1: I was fencing foil without competing until I was 10 years old. And obviously at the time, I had no, you know idea of what that would mean for my fencing development. But I think, you know, the coaches and my parents saw in me somewhat, you know, timidness, a shyness. And, you know, for me, what I read now as perfectionism, I think that if I would have been put in competition earlier, it would not have been good for me. I wasn't ready. And so I never fenced, you know, Y8. I started when I was 10 on the tail end of Y10 and continued on. But I think I realized that I was, you know, good at it when I started competing at 10 years old. And I fenced a bunch of like local mixed events, some RYCs, SYCs, although actually I don't think there were RYCs at the time. That was pre-RYC. Yeah. And I started seeing success at that level in the youth circuit. And that's what I kind of knew.
0: It's interesting to think about, like, when is the right time to start competing when you do start at a young age? And it it kind of reminds me of that King Richard movie about the Williams sisters, you know, that there was a storyline in there with the same thing. Like, when do we put them into real competition? And for you, it seems like the right decision was made. And then we should say you, you know, won the 2012 Y-12 National Championship. So that was a good way to know, you know, that against the best of your age group, you were pretty competitive. So do you remember that moment and how it felt?
1: Yeah, I remember the moment of winning the Y-12 National Championships like it was yesterday. I felt at the time like it was the pinnacle achievement of my life. And at that point, I think it was. There's an amazing photo of me just like almost in tears, so happy after I won the last 5-4 bout against my soon-to-be teammate at Columbia, Rachel Zhang. And I felt that it was a moment that I could never live up to again. And clearly, I did again later on, maybe a few times. But yeah, I think that every fencer remembers their big wins, even if they don't remember some other parts. Like, for example, I don't remember what the action was, but I remember the feeling afterwards.
0: That's great. Yeah, that'll stay with you. I mean, clearly it has. So at some point, you had to decide, I'm going to keep this going in college, which is a big step and a big hurdle, I would imagine, to say this is going to be part of my life for another four years after high school. So what was behind that decision? And then how did you end up at Columbia?
1: I think that once I made my first cadet world team in 2015, I was a little sought after by colleges and obviously nothing formal could happen with recruiting at that point. But you know, the college coaches, they go to junior worlds, they go to cadet worlds and you're interacting with them very informally and you're meeting people. So I think at at that point in 2015, I kind of knew that I would be fencing in college. Even prior to that, I fenced at a few fencing camps over the summer, sleepaway camps. One at Princeton, I did a few years at Cornell, a year at Penn. Highly recommend for you know kids that are interested in fencing in college, you meet the coaches and you get to stay in the dorms. And it was a big deal for me who never went to sleepaway camp because I was Fencing over the summer. You know, I was at nationals and then at fencing camps. So it was like a cool hybrid way of going to sleepaway camp for four nights and then also fencing.
0: So are you saying that it's important to get on the radar, not just with what you do at tournaments, but also, you know, all the other ways that you show that you're developing in the sport? Is that kind of the message there?
1: Yeah, I think that it's a good idea. I mean, if you're thinking about strategic ways to get on the radar, unless you, are winning world championships, you're not really, like, how else are you supposed to get people's attention? I think it's a really great idea to interface with the coaches, especially if they're giving you the opportunity through a camp. I know that my alma mater, Columbia, Mike Offertig, does a lot of outreach in clubs. So if you see that a college coach is going into your club, definitely Go to the camp and see what you can learn from them, first of all, because you know maybe you can learn something really valuable. And secondly, get your name out there, for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what was it about Columbia that was the right fit and made you say, this is where I need to be?
1: Yeah, I love Columbia. I wasn't sure that I was going to love Columbia going into college, but I knew that it was the right place for me for fencing and for academic reasons. I grew up in Westchester County, New York, so only a 45-minute train ride from Columbia's campus. I didn't spend a ton of time in the city growing up, so it still felt really new and different, but I was still within that radius to my family, who are extremely important to me, that it was the right place. Academic rigor goes without saying. I also considered Princeton. I thought the campus was beautiful and the fencing team was excellent, but I wanted to stay around New York City to be with my then coach, Slava Grigoriev.
0: So when you show up and you, you know, you're on the college team, I know that student athletes get like perks. Are you given like, you know, some swag, some team gear? And what are the perks like in college? As someone who wasn't a college athlete myself, this always interests me.
1: It's funny because I think it varies like by every single school, every single fencing school for, I can only speak to Columbia and at the beginning of your freshman year, you show up, you're super excited. They give you, they as in Mike Offertique, gives you last year's leftovers for apparel until the rest comes in. And then when the rest comes in, the rest being like t shirts, long sleeve shirts, pants, uh, sweatpants, like fall warm up gear, new fencing whites if you need them, a new lame, a new mask, a new glove, literally anything that I needed to perform at my best or that anybody on the team needed to perform at their best, Mike wanted to provide that if possible. It was, I'm sure, a lot easier for me to you know, justify these asks because I was performing very highly, but even those on the team who were mostly training partners, or if they were walking on but then performing really highly, he wanted to make sure that they had what they needed. And that's all funded by our kind of giving day activities. So we, <laughs> we, as a team, do outreach to our networks, our friends, our families, our alums, which I hope to get called this year by somebody on the fencing team.
0: Oh, that'll be great, kind of the full circle experience, yeah.
1: Yeah, it'll be great. But yeah, it's all, you know, funded by alumni and by donors who value what we did. So thank you to them for all the swag. But yeah, it's exciting going into college and having all of this new equipment at your disposal. It really unlocks a lot of, yeah, opportunity for a young fencer.
0: Absolutely. And if somebody who's at Columbia now is listening, be sure to hit up Sylvie for, you know, when it comes time for Giving Day, right?
1: You know, it's funny because I don't know if other universities do this, but the alums on the Columbia fencing team love to be difficult about giving money to the fencing team. So normally it's like, would you please give this year? And you know they will. But they'll say, I want a poem in my honor and I want you to post it on Facebook. And then that's what I literally did last year to an alum. I wrote a haiku for him. So it's fun. So you've been
0: on that side of it as well. That's awesome. Yeah. So what's the training schedule like? And, you know, obviously, as we said at the top of the show, your experience at Columbia was way beyond just fencing and you were so involved. So how did you have time for it all? And what was kind of a quote typical week maybe like for you on the team and as
1: a student athlete? Sure. Yeah. So there were kind of two times for me on the fencing team. The first would be my freshman, sophomore and junior years up until COVID. So like mid 2020 and then post COVID. So I'll talk about kind of like a day to day pre COVID. I would lift in the mornings with the team two times, three times a week, depending on the week go to practices three times a week from Columbia. I had the option of going to outside practices throughout New York City at Fencers Club or Brooklyn Bridge Fencing Club or New York Athletic Club, depending on where the action was that day. And I would take private lessons with my coach who would, luckily for me, drive in from Westchester and give me lessons two to three times a week. I had to mix that in with all of my classes. And so I had to really be strategic about the classes that I was going to take. But luckily I had upperclassmen on the team that helped me figure out how to make a schedule. Because we didn't have like set time periods for practice by the university. Sometimes colleges will do that. Like I know Princeton has like a, sometime in the afternoon where there are no classes and it's time for extracurriculars. Columbia didn't have that. So it was a little more your own adventure.
0: Sure. Yeah. You have to be a self-motivator then like, and have that drive and that, that passion.
1: Definitely. Luckily for me, I love scheduling and I was able to make it work. um, And that's just how my brain works. But I know that it's, it's not an easy thing to structure your time as heavily as I did. But Being an athlete, you learn that. And people say that all the time. You learn structure and you get your work done when you have more things to do. And I really found that to be the case.
0: So can we talk about the tournament structure at the college level? This is something that I don't fully understand myself. And I know that those of us who are maybe more familiar with the local, regional, and then the USA Fencing National tournaments are familiar with those. But how does the collegiate tournament differ?
1: Yeah, so college tournaments are centered around five-touch bouts, which is different from any other circuit because you only fence five-touch bouts in pool rounds at, say, an SYC or a NAC or a World Cup. So at a typical college meet, you'll have a few schools there, and you fence five-touch bouts, and each five-touch bout counts as a point for your college. So let's say Columbia was fencing Harvard, I won about 5-4, and then my teammate wins about 5-0. Even though I won by just a little bit and she won by a landslide, they both count for one point for Columbia. So a win is a win is a win in college fencing, whereas in other extra-collegiate levels, indicator really does matter.
0: Right. Yeah, an indicator is how much you win those pool bouts by, right? For those who are... Unfamiliar yes. with that term. No, for sure. That's interesting. And it's almost like tennis, right? With sets and tennis, you can win 6-0 or 7-6 and it still counts as one set.
1: Yeah, tennis is really fresh on everyone's mind right now. I'm watching the US Open as well. But it's very similar to tennis in that way. The one exception that I'll say in the college circuit is at the NCAA championships. So every point is about, just as I said before. But in order to win an individual NCAA title, you need to take into account your indicator. For example, this year in 2022, there were, I think, four women who each won 17 out of 21 or 22 bouts. Myself, one of them, but only one of us was able to advance to the top four because of indicator. And so the top four have a chance to become the individual NCAA champion. And so indicator did end up mattering in that situation. But normally it goes down to a uh, number of bouts One.
0: Yeah, and, and as we said at the beginning, you would definitely know, right, because you in 2019 were that individual national champion and then the team won a, a team championship that year as well. So what was the feeling in the room like there? I believe that tournament was at Penn State. So like, take us to that, take us to State College and what the team was experiencing in that moment.
1: So Penn State... The NCAAs at Penn State was actually my freshman year in 2018. But in 2019, we were in Cleveland, Cleveland State or something along those lines. And that's when Columbia won. So in 2019, we knew that that Columbia had won the team championship by the time that I was fencing for my individual title. So there was a ton of pressure off of my shoulders throughout the whole competition. I really was only fencing for the sake of the team. I was only a sophomore. I was hoping to make the top four again like I had my freshman year. But when you're in a college environment and you have your entire team bus or drive or fly out to Cleveland, you really only want to not let them down. And so that's what was on my mind the whole time, was fencing each bout and trying to get a point for my team. But after that was done and the whole team kind of felt a sigh of relief, they... (laughs) redirected all of their energy that you know nervous energy into just pure excitement and so every touch that i scored in the semifinal and finals was just directed at me and invigorated me so much so it was really a pleasure to fence in those semifinal and finals just because i knew that like i would be walking away with something like immeasurably important already and then it was just the cherry on top that i could bring home the individual title
0: yeah, that's so cool. And that seems, I mean, yes, we have teams and then at world events, you know, countries are rooting for their teammates, but it seems like the college fencing atmosphere just has that special something that, you know, you've been working together for, in some cases, four years if you're a senior, right? And it just seems like it has that special energy to it that is just what you described. It seems seems awesome.
1: Yeah, college fencing is Extremely unique in its team element. I have never and probably will never experience kind of that team camaraderie like I did on the Columbia fencing team. If you think of fencing as an individual sport, which it is, it's not on the college level, is what I'll say. Like college is really the only exception to that, where you really have to lean on others in addition to perform on your own.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And just the way you described it as, you know, these really short bouts that ultimately count for a single point, you've got to have a really strong team. You can't just rely on an individual person, even at these meets. So you're switching gears a little bit, you graduated this year, 2022, but the honors for your college career didn't end. Each college conference gets to nominate student athletes for the NCAA Woman of the Year Award. And Not only were you the Ivy League's nominee, but you were also the only fencer on that list of nominees. So what did that mean to you?
1: The NCAA Woman of the Year Award is something that wasn't on my radar when I graduated, but I knew that my former teammate, Iman Blow, was a nominee. And I know that Stephanie Deschner, who fenced for Notre Dame, was also a nominee. So I knew it existed, it was only when I looked into it after somebody at Columbia Athletics told me that I was to be nominated that I realized what it really meant. And so, it, for example, it recognizes me not only for my athletic achievements, but for the legacy that I leave on the team and my kind of footprint on you know, campus overall. And so I was really humbled by it, obviously. For people who don't know, I don't know if I explained this yet, I took a gap year during COVID. So I could fence after maybe, you know, I would be able to go and fence in person again and go to school in person again, but also for my mental health. And the fact that I was able to, you know, come back, perform well, and then be nominated by my university as a leader was incredible and really validating. And so, yeah, it was an amazing, amazing announcement. My whole family is so happy. My friends are super happy. I'm happy.
0: Yeah, of course. And the ways that you've given back don't just include Columbia and your time there, but also you've given back to kind of the fencing community. And I have a specific example. You mentioned Iman Blow, who was your teammate at Columbia. And in May, you were part of a panel discussing mental challenges and successes that you and the other women on the panel encountered in college. Now, I know that discussion was an hour long, and I believe Iman has posted a video of it online. But I'm wondering if you can, you know, summarize a key takeaway that you'd maybe want future college fencers to know about how they might manage the stresses of being a student athlete.
1: Yeah, I can definitely say a key takeaway. And I feel it very strongly that mental health is, especially when you're a fencer, is a practice and it's not something that you can just check off. I had to learn that over time because mental health fluctuates. Say, for example, you're traveling to a competition, your mental health and what you need is different from a day that you're experiencing a hard practice or a day that you're taking off and you need to totally rest your mind and your body. And that this whole mental health journey and practice doesn't have to be approached or tackled alone, that each person around you at practice Including your coach, including your teammates, you know, your parents, your friends, your family, they should be a part of it. And everybody is experiencing fencing and the mental challenges of fencing in their own way. And it's important to share it. So, like I mentioned, I was experiencing mental challenges going into the 2020 Olympic trials. I was trying to power through it. I fenced very well in a tournament in Poland, a World Cup where I got top 16, at which point I realized that I was in a far reach, but a contention for the Olympic team, at which point I just experienced like crippling anxiety and had to deal with that at a few more competitions before the world shut down. And while COVID is still a horrible, horrible thing that goes without saying that break for me was, you know, a way for me to stop a spiraling momentum. And I highly recommend for those who are feeling the starts of, you know, overwhelming anxiety or even say depression, to make sure that you're integrating mental health care into your practice routine. And so Iman has some great recommendations on her Instagram page. There are tons of mental health resources out there. I'm no expert, but I know that in my case, mental health has been a practice and something that has to be worked on
0: yeah, and I think it's brave that you're you know willing to share those personal moments as well and and that'll help a lot of people understand that they really aren't alone, like you said. it's something that everybody is dealing with some more maybe more privately than others, which you know is their choice for sure,
1: yeah, definitely. I may be pretty public about my challenges with my mental health, but that's just because I felt when I was at my lowest that I was somewhat on my own, but after speaking to so many of my like fellow athletes i've realized that we all are experiencing a similar thing and we're each learning our limits and i think that's important to you know recognize too that each athlete has their own physical limits like not everybody can do splits but everybody also has their mental limits too and that's nothing to be ashamed of yeah and that's what i'm learning
0: totally so Final question before we let you go. What's next for you in life and fencing and whatever you'd like to share?
1: Yeah. So I graduated in May and right now I'm working in clean energy at a company that I'm really feeling empowered by. Essentially what we're doing is helping buildings in New York and in the U.S. more broadly reduce their carbon emissions. And it's really interesting work. It's stimulating my mind, and I get to go to pretty cool buildings around New York City. As far as fencing goes, I'm not sure yet. Right now, I'm trying to work on the equilibrium of my work life. But if there's one thing for certain, I'll be at the Columbia Meets in New York City and cheering on my little brother, Zach, who's a sophomore at Columbia. So I'll definitely still be around.
0: That's great. We love to hear that. And there's Another great fencing family, right? There's quite a few out there, which is so awesome to see. Well, Sylvie Bender, thanks so much for being our guest and best of luck to you going forward.
1: Thank you so much. My pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to First to 15, the official podcast of USA Fencing. We'll be back with our next conversation in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, you can stay up to date on all the latest fencing news by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you like this podcast, please help us grow and reach more people by leaving us a rating or review. Until next time, I'm Brian Wendell, and I hope to see you real soon out on the strip. Bye.